God is building his church. ACC is a small part of that, but what God is doing in the world right now, you do not need to underestimate what the Spirit of God is doing when no one else is paying attention and when everybody else might be down on the church. The church is ready to rise up. And we've been doing this series all summer, walking through the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. And we've called it Built Different because 1 Peter was written to a scattered church that was being persecuted 2,000 years ago. So Christians who, things have gotten difficult for them in the Greco-Roman world. And Peter's going, hey, we live in the world but not of the world because God is building a spiritual house. And that house is not made up of bricks and wood. That house is not made up of stones. It's made up of broken people who are being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God's building his church, and and the material that he wants to use is your broken life, is your impossibility, is your tendency to be inconsistent. And as God molds and shapes people by the power of the gospel over time, the church becomes the beautiful bride of Christ that we're called to be. And so every week we're watching God breathe on the truth of his word. And my hope and my prayer today, because I do feel like God has downloaded something very clear to me. But I know unless the Spirit of God breathes on a willing mouth and there are willing hearts that are open to hear with spiritual ears what God has to say, then all I'll be doing up here is making noise. So I believe God's going to speak. And what's interesting about the flip that we've seen in 1 Peter is we've gone from so much theological, deep information about your identity in Christ to all these practical implications and commands where Peter's just going, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And this is not the first time, by the way. When you read a New Testament letter, it's usually starting with your identity of who you are in Christ and reminding you again and again, this is who you are. This is what God has done to save you. This is what Jesus has done. This is what it means to be a Christian. And the more the letter goes on, the more it shifts to, so in light of that, live this way, not this way. Build this relationship. Go about your life this way. And that's very important for you to remember because one of the greatest temptations of the Christian life is to live your life in the backward order. Where you go, I'm going to chase activity and try to make God happy and please him. And then the more I please him, the more I'll believe my identity in him. And it's the opposite. You believe who you are in Christ and then the activity flows from there. You believe what's true about what Jesus has finished on your behalf. And then the rest of your life is an overflow of those truths. So everything that we're being ordered to do is from a position of what it means to be bought with the precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1. Of what it means to be a chosen people, a holy nation set apart by God for something special. You don't become that the more you grow in Christ. You are that. And so let's grow in Christ. So I want to grow a confidence in our church. You don't spend your days wondering if you're one of the people God has set apart. It's the more that you believe that, that you actually tend to walk in it and it becomes more and more true as you live your life. So one of the commands that Peter's going to give today is the title of my sermon. And I want to give this to you at the very beginning. Today's sermon is called Always Be Prepared. Always be prepared. And if you're a note taker, I'll give you a second to write that down. Here's what I want you to do. It's going to be uncomfortable. I want you to ask someone next to you this question. I want you to ask them very clearly and with intentionality. Ask them, do you like surprises? Do you like surprises? Ask them. Peace, I see you. I'll be the person next to you. Be honest. Do you like surprises? Do you? See, I'm both, yeah. Do you like surprises? All right, look up here. It's... 
it's usually definitive. Like there are very few people who are like, yes, love it, love, just I want my life to be a mystery and an adventure. Most people are like, nope, tell me beforehand. That's why I'm so anxious. Like, no, I don't like surprises. I would say I'm a mixture of both. I'm like, it depends. Like it is a good surprise. If it's something I didn't see coming that like makes my life better, by all means, please do that. But if you text me in the middle of the day and it says, hey, period, we need to talk, period, our, my life's over. Like, I'm, I'm reliving. I'm like, oh, man, I remember eight years ago we were at your birthday party, and I, I did. I said something super offensive, and you've been holding on to that this whole time. Maybe that's why we're not friends anymore. And so I'll just read into all these things and go, okay, those periods alone are reason enough for me to freak out. I like being surprised when it's pleasant, and I don't like being unprepared for something that's coming my way. And really, what this message is rooted in is it's rooted in a heart that needs to be rightfully prepared, not fully ready for what God might be doing all around you. So whether you like surprises or not, what we're talking about today is not about whether or not you know everything that's going to happen in a given day or a given season. It's about whether or not your soul has been cultivated to a state of readiness to step into a moment. My number one fear in life, this is no exaggeration, my number one fear Above dogs, above camping, above anything involving outdoors, like I, above all of that. My number one fear in life is being unprepared. The most common nightmare that I have again and again is that I'm standing where I'm standing right now. Actually, typically it's not in this room because I feel like you guys would understand if I was like, y'all, I have no idea how this happened. I should have studied this week, but I didn't. I'm sorry. But I, I'm like in an arena somewhere speaking and I don't know how I got there, and I have no idea what the message is supposed to be about. That is my worst nightmare. Not because I can't wing it in the moment, but because I know there is something powerful about getting your soul into a position of preparedness. And not that I need to know everything that I'm going to say, but that I'm, going, I'm sitting there in that moment going, how did this happen? How did I end up in this moment and not spend any time intentionally making myself ready? And the command that we are going to get from Peter is about always being prepared for two different realities. One of them is being prepared for a life of suffering and difficulty and persecution. And the other one is about being prepared for God to vindicate you and keep his promises and show up in a powerful way. And here's how I want to preach it today. I want to preach to the people in the room who are more prepared to suffer than they are for God to be faithful. I don't know if that's you. That's me. I'm way more prepared for things that might go wrong than I am prepared in my spirit that God might be writing a better story than I gave him credit for, and I need to be prepared for God to show off in and through my life. We've got a generation of people who are so good at projecting negativity and projecting the worst outcome, and we're anxious, and we're fearful, and we're sitting here going, I'm, I want to be prepared just in case. And some of that is rightful because it's a response to, Jesus said we will have trouble in this world. This world is broken. Every human being on this planet, if Jesus doesn't come back, all of us will die. There are sicknesses. There are countless things that are happening in our lives that we can't control. But we end up in this paralysis where we go, I've got to project into my future everything that might go wrong and prepare myself accordingly. But the Christian way of thinking is not, let's spend our lives afraid and paralyzed. It's let's spend our lives aware and betting on God's faithfulness and living full of hope. And there's not a lot of hope of people going, you know what? God might be doing so much more than I realize right now in a good way. And what if there was a daring level of faith that God has called us to as his people that goes, 
I don't know how you're going to make a way. I know you will. Because I've seen your track record in the scriptures. And when you read this book cover to cover, this is not a collection of stories about people who continue to disappoint this God who just barely sees them through seasons of suffering. This is a story about broken people who, when they become daring enough to believe God for his promises, he shows up and shows out in ways that make him famous and make the people stand in awe. And I just don't want to spend the rest of my life surprised every time God is faithful to do what he promised to do. I want to spend my life in anticipation that that's what he wants to do. So I'm not paralyzed the whole time with inactivity. So I have this hope and this joy that doesn't necessarily read into God's agenda everything he might do or everything that I want him to do. But it goes, listen, I don't know what you're going to do, but I know you have this track record of being awesome. You have this track record of keeping your promises. And over and over again, you display yourself like this. And I don't know why I'm walking around my life not giving you credit for doing all the things that I can't see that you are doing. You know right now, if you could see what God is doing in the world for a split second, you would not be freaked out. You would smile. If you could see what God's dreaming about and thinking about for your marriage, for your family, for your own personal revelation of him, it is not something that would make you fearful and cower away. It's something that would go, I think my God loves me more and has more of a concern toward my future than I realize. And none of this negates the reality of suffering. None of this means we live in a state of denial, but it does mean we learn to live as the set-apart people of God who has a hope that makes the world look at us and go, why do you have something that nobody else has? And we look a lot like the world with how anxious and fearful we have become. And what's going to set us apart is when we go, no, I'm actually anticipating with awareness that you're doing more than I see. That's why in the New Testament, a command that you'll read again and again and again is wake up, be aware, be ready. Because the scriptures, they don't want you to see every detail that God is writing, but they do call your spirit to be in this position that's going, what's he about to do? What's next? What is coming up in my life? And my problem, and I think so many of our problems in this room, is that our spiritual senses become dulled by the distractions that make us apathetic over time to where our senses are so disconnected from the activity of God that we let our circumstances dictate our response instead of the promises of God guiding our peace and us going, I'm going to bank on the fact that you're telling a story in and through my life that you want to get glory through. And I know I'm going to have to suffer, but probably more than I'm going to have to suffer, I'm going to be dumbfounded looking up at the sky going, how are you this awesome? Very few Christians walking around like that. And I'm going to argue from 1 Peter 3, that's the thing that should be the most distinctive about a Christian. See, we think what makes Christians the most distinctive is the way they suffer and remain faithful. What if it's supposed to be the way they suffer and remain joyful and hopeful? What if it's supposed to be that we're walking around in seasons that make no sense to be walking around this way going, I just have this feeling that God might still be faithful. And if he comes through on my behalf, the story he could tell would be so amazing. Are you ready to open the word of God? Are you prepared? Are you prepared? Did you come prepared? Lift up your Bible if you came prepared. So I've been getting some complaints lately. Like, hey, you haven't haven't really made a way for the single people in a while. Hey, I don't know how God's going to make a way. I know he will. But hold it up. I I want you to mark your calendar, August 15th. Can't tell you all the details of it. It's like the first Sunday when everybody gets back for school. We're going to do one big gathering. 
And it is going to be the largest single-person Bible drill you have ever seen in your life because summer equals breakups. All right, turn with me. Whoa, turn. I went to camp. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. That's going to be so good. I'm so excited and so nervous for the fall. First Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 8. And remember, Peter is given commands. He's given practical instructions. And I like the first word he uses. This is funny. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. If you're there, say I'm there. there. Finally. Okay, if you have your Bible open and you see the word finally, take a quick peek at how much he still has left to say. <laughs> this is a pastor move right here. Hey, in conclusion, I'm, I'm wrapping up. Hey, I promise I'm done. That's what I say every week. And it's like, no, you're halfway there. Like, you have so much more to say. I love that. He's like, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For, and this is a quote from Psalm 34, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter's commands here align directly with the key core teachings of Jesus' ministry. What Peter is prescribing is that you do good to those who do evil to you instead of just doing good to those who treat you well. And he's actually arguing that this is a better way to live your life. And Peter's not making this up. He's taking this straight from Jesus' teaching. So 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, his announcement when he, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, 2,000 years ago, the Jews of that time were like, yep, right on. Book of Deuteronomy, so good. That is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The way Jesus made himself distinctive from every other rabbi or every other teacher who had ever lived was when he redefined what the word neighbor means. He's like, yeah, love your neighbor as yourself, but your neighbor is not just people who live next to you and look like you and talk like you. It's the person who you are most tempted to distance yourself from because you look nothing like them and you struggle to love them. And Peter's going, listen, we got to be those people who model what our rabbi modeled. We're going to return insult with good, and the result will be a better life than if you spend your life returning to people what you think they deserve. And that's why he quotes Psalm 34, and he said, hey, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. He's making an argument, hey, your life would go better if someone talks behind your back, if you don't go talk behind their back to return to them what they gave to you, but you actually do good, maybe have a hard conversation, but do good to them in light of the fact that they mistreated you, and that's a better way to live your life because that frees you from living in the prison of bitterness, and it frees you to live a life of forgiveness that puts your life in God's hands, and it's called the freedom of submission. And he says, if you love life and good days, keep your tongue from evil. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Look at verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? He's legitimately asking. If you live your life the way Jesus lived his life, who's going to harm you? How is this going to go poorly? And I know, as soon as I say that, you're like, okay, Jesus harmed 
That, that did not end well for him. And he creates an on-ramp for that. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He says, hey, there is a part of life that involves suffering for doing the right thing. But here's what's different about you. Look at verse 14. Do not fear their threats. If you see that, look at the footnote. It says, or fear what they fear. I love that translation. Do not fear what they fear. See, your fear guides a different lifestyle than the rest of the world around you. If fear is the most driving motivator of humanity, then we need to identify what is the difference between worldly fear and godly fear. And here it is. You can write this down. The world fears an outcome they can't control. Christians fear God who controls the outcome. The world fears an outcome they can't control. Christians fear God who controls the outcome. So we're not afraid of what they're afraid of because we have made our ultimate fear, another word would be awareness, in who God is. So when the Bible talks about fearing God, it's not about cowering away from him and going, okay, you're, no, you're going to punish me. I'm scared of you. It's about a level of awareness of who he is that leads to a lifestyle of readiness for whatever may come. Because you've already put your life in the hands of God. Now the rest of the world is afraid of things that they can't control and they can't see. Christians don't live that way. They live their life in an awareness of who God is. And they go, even though I don't see the outcome, you know it. And you're the one who's in control of it. And you're the one who has my soul in my life. So my hope is going to look different than the world who looks at me and goes, why are you walking around so hopeful? And Peter goes, hey, when they notice that you have this hope, you better always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. And he's kind of like double preparing believers. He's going, hey, be prepared for suffering that's unjust, but also be prepared for that to lead to a moment where you have to give an account for why you are responding the way you are responding. Now, i got to finish this passage and, and the moment I had this week when I realized that this passage was in this sermon, I could not believe it because I totally forgot about this when I said we're going to do a series on First Peter. Last week, if you were here, I talked about submitting to governing authorities even when they're oppressive. I talked about slaves submitting to their masters and the definition of biblical slavery. And I talked about wives submitting to their husbands even if they're unbelievers. That was fun. Uh, that was really good to, to walk through that. Walk, you, you can check that one out online. You're like, oh, well, I'm glad we traveled last week. Um, but I, I got to the end of that one. I was like, thank God. I cannot wait to open up my Bible and see what Peter has to say this week. I'm like, yes, do not fear what they fear. Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared. This is going to be so good. And then I got to 18 through 22. And um, if you're, you don't know this, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22 is widely regarded to be the hardest passage in the New Testament to know what it means. Uh, this is, I would say, a revelation included. This is dumbfounded scholars for thousands of years. People have not even debated about what this means. They just throw out suggestions for what they think it means. So when I read what I'm about to read, if you feel like your brain's about to explode, welcome to the club. Like nothing to freak out about. I'm going to give my best shot at explaining it, but let's just read it and key, see it in context of what we have read already, okay? Look at verse 18. Watch this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 
He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. That's not so bad, but here we go. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited in the days of Noah, waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. All right, lean in. Here we go. Verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins. We know that. The righteous for the unrighteous. We know that. To bring you to God. He was put into death Friday, but made alive in the spirit. Sunday. Cool. After being made alive... He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What this is saying, first of all, if we were having coffee and you said, Miles, what does this mean? Being 100% transparent, I would go, I have no idea. I cannot definitively say what Peter means by this. I can offer you what I've read a couple of scholars say, and then I'll give you my own opinion. It's widely thought about that what's being talked about here is Jesus descending into hell after he died on the cross and before he rose again on Sunday. And there's, it's actually a part of some of our creeds that Jesus went to hell and took the keys of death from the enemy and that this was actually a sermon because it says he made proclamation to imprisoned spirits. It's a sermon to the people who died in the flood and didn't listen to Noah who was building the ark. That's what some people say. The imprisoned spirits are... Human beings who have died but are awaiting future judgment, and Jesus is making proclamation as he takes on his victory. But you got to be careful with that because we don't definitively know that Jesus went into hell. That's widely thought about, but you do recognize that Jesus on the cross looked at the thief next to him and said, hey, today you will be with me in paradise. I believe that that means that the spirit of Jesus is with this man in the presence of God. But I also believe that there was a victory over hell that was had, and I don't know how all that transpired in that moment. So you got to be careful with all of these translations. Some scholars, even today, a, a pastor who a lot of you follow along with, makes the suggestion that all of this is symbolic. Jesus was preaching through Noah back then. And what Peter's doing is drawing on the spirit of Jesus, preaching through Noah to those disobedient, imprisoned spirits who were never going to get onto the ark in the first place. And then now we're reading back into it so that we can take a level of meaning from the story of Noah, which that level of meaning, and this is confusing, is baptism. And Peter says you were saved through baptism, not like actually getting dunked and getting baptized, but the symbol of baptism is what saves a believer. So you don't get saved when you get dunked. The fact that you're getting dunked is a symbol of the fact that you have a clear conscience toward God. That's why Peter says, some of y'all's brains are hurting right now. By the way, I'm watching this happen. I don't know what's going on in Birmingham. People are walking out, freaking out, but stay with me. Baptism is a picture of being washed away from your sins. And Peter's reaching into the story of Noah, and he's like, remember those eight people who are on a boat, and the water comes, and judgment is being poured out, but they're spared through the water? That's the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus, that we are spared through his blood and saved. And there's all these different thoughts of what, who was Jesus making a proclamation to? Who are the imprisoned spirits? Others would say the imprisoned spirits are not people who have died. They are principalities and demons who have been condemned. This may rock a lot of your worlds, but angels and humans and demons are not necessarily the only types of creation that exist in the created order. Just read the book of Revelation. There's a lot of them. 
So when we say demon, we're referring usually to principalities and authorities in this unseen world that we don't know a lot about. But in the unseen world, there are a lot of little g gods who are trying to spoil and take away from our God, Yahweh, who is the God of all gods. And so it's taught that Jesus is actually preaching this to spirits of demons that have been imprisoned to remind them of the victory that he just took. And then if you pushed it further, I promise I'm almost done with this. Please don't let this distract you from the whole point of this sermon. If you ask me, point blank, Miles, what do you think? I think that this, <laughs> this passage, <laughs> I think it's somehow connected to Genesis chapter 6 in the story of Noah when Genesis 6 begins with the most confusing passage in the entire Old Testament. So if I call this the most confusing one in the New Testament, the most confusing one in the Old Testament is this passage about the Nephilim, Nephilim, Nephilim. It's actually Nephilim is the right way to say it. And the way Moses talks about this in the book of Genesis is that these are like these giants, these men of renown. I don't understand all of this, by the way. They're somehow like they started having children with the daughters of the sons of God. And it's this confusing narrative. And then all of a sudden God goes, boom, I regret making humanity. I'm going to flood the earth. And that word regret is translated differently in Hebrew. It doesn't mean that God looked back and thought, you know, I wish I didn't do that. It's that God goes, they are so sinful. This would be better if they weren't here, but I'm still going to make a way. And I think Jesus made a proclamation to the Nephilim, who are judged spirits in between dying on a Friday and rising on a Sunday. Now, if you want more information about that, Matt Cole's email is, <laughs> I'm just kidding. That is not the purpose of this sermon. I say all of that to say I've done my homework, I've done the best I can to interpret this, but it's very confusing. When you get to a passage of scripture that kind of blows your mind, and even when you look up explanations, you're still confused, here's a, a big hint. Stop looking so deeply at what's confusing you and start looking at the surrounding context. When something gets really confusing, look at what was written before and what was written after. Because what you have in the passage before is this whole passage about suffering and being prepared to give a reason why you have hope. And what you have after it, I'm not going to go too deep into it because Gage is going to go there next week. But you have 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 that says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. So the whole narrative of this is this progression of expecting and preparing for suffering and doing good even when you're suffering and preparing and expecting for God to make vindication for your case and for you to have to proclaim why you are so hopeful because God is that good. Y'all look up here and don't miss this. The progression for Jesus was suffer, do good to the people who are insulting you and punishing you, and then what is he doing? He's proclaiming victory over those imprisoned spirits, and he's going, God made a way. I am the way. I am the full payment for sin. You cannot have my children. And that same progression of, oh my gosh, things are terrible. It looks like you lost to, oh, you won, and now you're making a proclamation of victory. That same progression is the progression that the eight people in the ark go through. When you look at the story of Noah, you have people building an ark, a man building something for a flood in a time where it had never rained on planet Earth, y'all. It hadn't rained. So if you're going, hey, uh, God is going to destroy everything and you need to get on this boat to escape judgment. Everyone around you is going, you're crazy. 
Noah was made fun of. His life was threatened. And then what happened? What happened? Oh, my goodness. The wrath does come, and those people are destroyed. And Noah and his family, for 40 days and 40 nights, go through that storm, and they sit on that ark until what happens? Until there's a rainbow in the sky. And God goes, I am faithful. Here's what Peter wants you to see. He wants you to see that you need to be ready to suffer even when it's unfair, but you also need to be ready for God to bring you through that and to give an account for how great your God is at keeping his promises. That's what this is about. It's about having a hopeful spirit. It's about remembering no matter what you're going through that it's not over. It's about knowing that the promises of God are still yes and amen in Jesus. And it's about having a prepared spirit to make a case for the hope that exists within you. And all eight of those people, when they saw that rainbow, they saw the faithfulness of God on display in a way that so many of us dream about. But I'm arguing that if you're in the middle of a storm or you're being maligned or you feel like God has left you, I'm telling you, if you stay the course, there is coming a day where you see that God is faithful to keep his promises and you actually look back on how much you've doubted and gone, I wish I would have been more prepared for God to show up and bring me through that even when it looked like it made no sense. Here's where we're living, y'all. Don't miss this, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. The definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1 1 is the assurance of things hoped for. So people who walk by faith don't just say, well, I believe God's going to come through, and I believe Jesus is the Son of God. We do it with gentleness and respect, but we also do it with hope. You know what hope is? It's a vibrant sense that the future is better than the present. Hope, you, you, getting your hopes up means I'm walking around with a belief that where I'm going is better than where I am. And he's saying Christians on this planet should be being accused of being crazy about the hope that they have. That we shouldn't be walking around going, I just trust God to get me through this. We should be walking around going, I have no idea how he is going to make a way. Oh, but I know he will. He is faithful to do it again and again and again. And he hasn't left my life out of that story. People should be looking at us and going, why do you have the joy that you have approaching the days that we are in right now? And it is because my hope is not anchored to what I see. It is anchored to what God says. And I've seen it in my life, and I know there are situations in this room who it makes no sense for some of you to be hopeful. Some of you I've made eye contact, uh, eye contact with while I'm preaching. I'm just going, how does this go over with what they're going through right now? I get that completely. But I wonder what your story would look like today as a widow to go, this is the most lonely, hard season I've ever gone through, but I know he's going to make a way. He always does. What does it look like for somebody who just moved into a new context and it's not going well to go, I, I have no idea how you're going to make this space home, but I know you will. What does it look like for the many couples in our church who are going through infertility to go, I don't know why this is so easy for everybody else, but for us, I know the way that you're going to make is better than what I can see or sense right now. What does it look like to walk around? Not denying reality, not absent of emotion, but agreeing that God is still this God. 
and agreeing that Jesus is still this faithful. It means you walk around not looking at the facts and statistics, but looking at heaven and preparing for him to display his nature once again. This is why the thing I am the most hopeful about on planet earth right now is the church, which makes no sense because when people talk about the church, the whole narrative right now is about the decline of church attendance, the decline of Christianity in the Western world, and that the United States of America is headed down the same path as Europe. Our greatest fear in the church right now is this post-Christian liberalism where everything's relative to what everybody thinks and Christianity is offensive. And I hear Americans talking like the end of the reign of the church in the United States of America is here. You know what that makes me do? That doesn't make me cower away in disappointment. That makes me lean forward in anticipation because I know he's got tendencies. And I know he's got these tendencies of flipping the narrative in a hurry. So, by the way, around the world right now, there are things happening in Europe that are really unfortunate. And if you go to Europe right now, there is church buildings with no people and a younger generation that is angry and fatherless. That's what you'll see. You know what else is happening in Europe right now? There's a small remnant of believers who are faithfully praying, and God is ready to pour out revival on that continent like no other time in human history. But do you know what else is happening around the world? We look so, okay, we look at Europe and we look at North America. Do you realize right now, the greatest places for revival right now are in the Middle East, in Asia, in South America, and in Africa. The fastest growing church in the world right now is in Iran. How does that happen? This is what he likes to do. He likes to make himself known by unlikely outcomes. Well, yeah, you didn't know how I was going to do that. But I like, what, what did he like being known as in the God of the Old Testament? He liked being known as the God who parted the sea for the Israelites to cross over on dry ground. Why? Because they had no other way. There's no, there's no way. There's no amount of programs or preparation in that moment that is going to get you to a moment where you're like, okay, there's an army over here and there's a sea right here. We have no way to go. And in heaven, God wasn't freaking out in that moment going, oh, we did not plan this well. <laughs> God was going, this is so set up for us to show off. I think there was a little bit of a smile from God within the Trinity that Moses was clued into when he looked into heaven. I don't know how you're going to make a way. You're on. Make a way. And as the church explodes in the most unlikely areas, and as I believe for a future in Europe, I look at America right now and I go, oh, wow. You have primed us to be a voice in this season for the hope of Jesus to stand out like never before. I get goosebumps if I talk about it for too long, but when I think about the fact that God may be putting an army in the middle of the Bible belt where 18 to 22-year-olds every single year are going to have their worldview framed by the gospel in the context of a church that exists in a college town where people are not wasting their lives on prosperity and comfort but living fully surrendered for the discipleship of believers to go out all over the world. I go, we get to live in that era? I'm not going, oh, we went through COVID. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, we got so much pain. Like, I'm worshiping God, and I'm going, I have no idea what you're about to do. And I'm so glad I'm still breathing, and I get to see these days on planet Earth. And you get around a Christian who life's not easy for them, but they talk like that, and they walk like that. They're carrying a level of hope that people who don't know Jesus, and even people who think they do, look at them and go, what is it with you? What is going on with you? And it's like, my hope is anchored to something you can have. And if you need me to give a reason for the hope that I have, I'm prepared. Are you always prepared for God to be doing more than you see him doing right now? 
I got three questions to ask you as this sermon closes, and I legitimately want you to ask yourself these questions because I don't want this sermon to be something that you can't do anything with. It's like, man, he was like getting really excited about something, and I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that on Monday. I want to be very clear because even as I preach this passage, I realize that so much of this is hard for an American mind to take in. It's built for people who are in context where there's real persecution. So I ask these questions for us in our context right now so that these verses can come alive. Are you all ready? Look at somebody next to you and tell them, you got to be prepared. you got to be prepared for this. Okay. Number one, very convicting question. Are you prepared to articulate the gospel? Are you prepared to articulate the gospel? Now, this is two questions in one. I'm asking you simultaneously Do you even know how to articulate the gospel? And I'm asking you, even if you know how, are you expecting to today? Are you prepared? If I calculated the number of people in this room or who are tuned in with us right now, and I calculated all of you who call yourself a Christian, I realize that's not everybody, but if I calculated, this is how many people we have at this church who call themselves Christians. And then simultaneously, I calculated how many of you would answer yes to this question the number would be substantially lower to the second. And that's not okay. It's never been okay for somebody to profess belief in Jesus and not have the capability to articulate what exactly Jesus did on your behalf. This is only the most important thing about you, y'all. And we spend so little time actually covering this. And so I've talked about it in previous series, but I'm going to give you four words. If you want to know how to articulate the gospel, these four words impact your entire worldview. They are glory, lostness, mercy, and mission. Glory, lostness, mercy, and mission. And this impacts the way you see everything about the world around you. So when you think, what is the gospel? What is the good news about Jesus? Here it is. This world was created for the glory of God. Everything about our planet physically and everything about our relationships horizontally is meant to point back to God, a vertical level of glory that goes, the one who made this is amazing. The one who made this is valuable. And our planet made in perfect unison with the glory of God has this fall, this is number two, where lostness sets in when human beings become the first creation to look in the face of a holy God and say no. And the lostness of humanity impacts every fiber of our existence. It's the reason why death exists. It's the reason why cancer exists. It's the reason why there are shootings at baseball games last night. Every time I see something like that, I'm like, a reminder, this is not our home. This planet is broken at the same time. Everything good that you see about this planet, the love you experience in relationships, the beauty that you see in creation, everything about this life that you're like, man, it's so cool to be alive. That is that reminder in you of what you were made for. So you got, you got this confusing world that we live in where the glory of God is on display and how lost and broken we are and separated from God is on display. Now, when those two things collide, you get the story of Noah. You get God in Genesis 6. We're only six chapters in and God's going... This is not good. I am going to drop my wrath on humanity. And I know we read that and we're like, man, our God has a short temper. No, you need to understand that when God tells his name, Yahweh, and he names what he's all about, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, compassionate, gracious. Number seven, the seventh one has to do with punishing sin. So it is a part of who he is, but he's much more slow to anger. He gets to that point with Noah's generation, but what does he do? He finds favor with Noah, 
Why? Because Noah had faith. God has the capacity to credit faith as righteousness, and the pattern exists from the very beginning. And so what happens? God unleashes his wrath, and Noah and his family are saved. And what does God do at the end? He hangs a bow in the sky. I had a seminary professor who told me, that's God hanging up the bow of his wrath and going, I will never do that again. Every time you see a rainbow, it's a reminder of the mercy of God. He also said, but don't think that that means his wrath is gone forever. It just means he reversed the direction of it. God was unleashing his wrath on humanity for sin like this in the story of Noah. He hangs his bow and re-aims it at himself. And when we talk about the mercy of God... You have to get outside your Bible Belt assumptions because you heard this growing up and understand that God, if you create everything, you don't have to be like anything. You get to be like whoever you are because you're God. Our God is the type of God to go, you're lost and broken and separated from me because of rebellion. I'm glorious and holy and perfect, and we have to be away from each other forever unless where there is no way, I make a way. And so I'll turn the bow against my own son and allow him to be the one who pays for my wrath. And now the blood of Jesus creates a way where anyone and everyone, this is why every time we get up here and say, God is not concerned about your sin today and whether or not he's willing to talk to you. That's not because we have a flippant view of sin. It's because we have a high view of it and we know it was paid for on the cross. And your conscience was paid for as well. So now you get to come into the most holy place, not with a guilty conscience, but with full confidence to go, the blood of Jesus bought me back and now mercy has made a way. And that's not the end of the story. Now you get to spend the rest of your life on mission, expanding the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness until the day where Jesus makes it all right, wipes every tear from our eyes and we live forever and ever in heaven. That's the gospel. Glory, lostness, mercy, Mission. Can you articulate that? And that doesn't mean that you have to repeat word for word what I just said. That means, does that worldview frame the way you go about conversations with real, like, can you, right where you are, say to somebody, hey, I can point you to Jesus. And at best, most of you are barely able to invite someone to church. That's a problem. Because Peter doesn't say, always be prepared to invite someone to hear from the guy who knows what he's talking about. He says, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that exists on the inside of you. Can you articulate this? And and listen, it's not walking through it on a napkin at lunch going, hey, God's glorious, and we're, no, 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 no. It means how do you frame those things in real conversations with real people to point people to the gospel message of Jesus? And last thing I'll say about question number one is it's not just about knowing how to articulate. It's about whether or not you're even expecting that to be a part of your day today. So some of you know how to articulate it. You just don't ever expect to have a real conversation about Jesus during the day. And God would open the door when you open the door through prayer, by the way. So I found in my life, I have as many conversations spiritually as my heart was willing to be tuned for beforehand. So if you're not having them and you ask God, God, this makes me super uncomfortable, but provide a conversation today for me to talk about you. I'm telling you, get ready to get uncomfortable because he's faithful to answer that prayer. I prayed that prayer a couple weeks ago. I was driving downtown. I didn't want to talk to anybody. Getting my hair cut, I'm like in the middle, that middle parking spot where the meter was down for a while, like right at Magnolia, right where Taco Mama is. You guys know we all compete for that spot. And, uh, and, and I, was like, I was like, Lord, I, no, I was like, I don't want to pray this. 
but I know I need to because I'm preaching that sermon in 1 Peter about giving an account for the reason you have hope. Okay, God, provide a way for me to have a conversation about Jesus. And I did not want to. I'm telling you, I closed the door to my car and turned like this, and there is a man with his arms crossed going, Miles, and like desperately needed to have a conversation with me about Jesus. And I'm just like, Lord, you are faithful. If we will just get out of our apathetic numbness that exists because of distraction, we would actually have opportunities for this. So keep your eyes open for it and be prepared to. That's number one. The second two are super quick. Number two, are you prepared to look strange to others who are less serious about Jesus? Are you prepared to look strange to others who are less serious about Jesus? This is a very hard passage to preach to you guys in the United States of America in 2021. Because 95% of the world right now, and this is a legitimate statistic, 95% of the church that has ever existed in human history, 2,000 years, 95% of both, exists in a context where these verses make perfect sense. Because there's heavy persecution for professing faith in Jesus. You live in the 5% where this is a foreign language. So wait, I might suffer for believing this? And in America, we don't, we don't have a context for it. Like, I'm sorry. I know like, people might make fun of you, and you're like, well, I got persecuted. Somebody made fun of me for having faith in Jesus. I'm sorry. That is not persecution. You got your feelings hurt. Like, persecution is the government is at the door going, you still believe in this stuff? Because your life and your family and your finances and your future are on the line. You sure you still want this? And going, yes. So I thought, how do I preach this? Some of you may be called to go to a place where that can actually apply and be something real, but how do I preach this to Americans? And I thought, you know who it's going to bother the most if you walk around with the type of hope that I'm talking about. It won't bother non-Christians that much. It will bother cultural Christians who think you are just too serious about this stuff. That's Auburn for you. You start living like this, you're going to stand out to people who go, I get it. Like, yeah, I'm Christian. Like, why do you take it so serious? And originally when I wrote this question, I wrote, are you prepared to look strange to others who are less serious about faith? And I crossed out faith and I wrote Jesus because Jesus is the name that offends. And Jesus is the reason why we're dead serious about this. And so I believe if you're going to live this way, you might be watching this from another context where you really do stand out. We don't stand out that much in Auburn, Alabama. It's a pretty awesome place to be a Christian, just to be honest with you. But here's where you will stand out. You will stand out to people who just want you to be quiet about how passionate you are about Jesus. You will look strange. Now I'm ready for us to look strange in this town as a group of worshipers, not to bother other Christians, but just to clarify what the word Christian means. That Christians are fully committed to preaching the gospel, and Christians are also fully committed to looking weird when necessary, not being weird intentionally. That's another sermon for another day. But are you ready? Like, this is what it means to live a life prepared. This, I'm going to live my life with this new level of hope, and I'm going to preach the gospel with my life, and you know what? It might make no sense to people who think they are believers. That's the type of people we're going to be. And then number three, the best one. Are you prepared for God to keep his promises? Are you prepared for God to keep his promises? So if you live your life this way, you don't need to walk around for the rest of your life wondering whether or not God's going to come through on your behalf. You need to learn to live your life bouncing with anticipation from one calling to another calling in your day because God is doing more than you think he is. If I could tell you all the times in my life personally where the promises of God have come to light in front of me, and I've thought to myself, I wish 
I would have just let you be God the whole time. If I would have known this was coming, I wouldn't have fought with you that whole journey, and I wouldn't have doubted you that many times, and I would have... Listen, what does it look like to have faith on the front end for personal promises from God? Our God is a God who makes a way. He's a God who hangs the rainbow to remind his people of his mercy. But when Noah's family saw that rainbow, I wonder how many of them wish they could have had that last season back to go. No way. I got dragged to seeing the faithfulness of God like so many of the Israelites. I believe the disciples had a shift between Jesus' death and then his resurrection and the way the church started. If you watch the disciples in the New Testament, they are a train wreck. They, are, they cannot keep up with Jesus. They have no idea what he's going to do next. And to be honest, a lot of them are talking about leaving the whole time. I don't know how we can accept this teaching and what is he, what is he doing, what is he doing? But there's a shift that happens after he rises from the dead. They now know the nature of their God and the church is exploding, being led by people who are confident that our God is a God who keeps his promises. And so I want to have a shift at ACC where we don't walk around wondering whether or not, it's going, whether or not God's going to do it or arguing with him about how he's going to do it. No, he's going to do it. Like some of you are so frustrated in the season of singleness. There's going to be a day where you see the rainbow of the promise of God in real time and you go, okay, I didn't think you were going to make a way, but now you did. And what would it look like if we had just as much faith on the front end as we did gratitude on the back end and said, God, you're going to keep your promise and I'm going to live my life like you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know you're a God who makes a way. So I want us to have a moment as we worship. We're going to sing that same song that we came out singing. I don't know how you make a way, but I know you will. And I want us to proclaim it with every ounce of faith in your body. And if you're in a season where you need to demonstrate faith, we're going to turn the front of this room into an altar. You can come bow. You can come fall before the Lord. It might be strange. It might be uncomfortable. But if you're going through something right now where you're like, no, I'm sick and I need healing. And so I'm coming down and going, God, I believe you're faithful to keep your promise. I believe you haven't changed in 2,000 years. You're still the God who heals the sick. And I'm not saying that everything you're believing for an outcome is going to happen on the exact timetable you want it to. But I am saying our God is still the God of the Bible. And he's going to keep his promises. Do you believe that today? And can we rise up and sing and pray and leave this space with a hope that's not anchored to what's happening, but with a hope that's anchored to what our Bibles say? Come on, let's stand up all over this room. Let me pray over you. This is a moment. If you need to go, if you got lunch plans, that's fine. If you're in this space, tune into the presence of God right now. Heavenly Father, I ask you in the mighty name of Jesus, that you would embolden people with a new level of agreement to your character. That you are not just the God who came through for Noah in the flood. You are not just the God who came through for Moses and split that sea. You are not just the God who came through for David and slayed a giant. You are not just the God who made promises to Isaiah and Jeremiah and to Daniel and to Micah and to Jonah. You are not just the God who led the disciples. You are not just the God who started the church in Acts. You are not just the God who promised in the book of Revelation to wipe every tear from our eyes. No, you're the God who's in our situation and in 2021 in Auburn, Alabama, right? right now. So help us to believe it. 
Help us to sing like it. Help us to pray like it. And help us to praise like it. Not after the miracle, but before it. And not because of the miracle, but because of your character. We love you, Jesus. These songs are yours. This moment is yours. Fill this space, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.